Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no-film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. I'm John Fusco. It's May 11th, 2017, and on this week's show, how one filmmaker proved that a festival lied about watching his movie and got his money back, filmmaking headlines from just about every screen except the big one, and what the future holds for the one and only David Lynch. And as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. We occasionally like to bring up articles on the No Film School website that generate a lot of discussion in our community. So we are going to kick off the show with one of those today. All right. Yeah. So yesterday we published an article that caused quite a stir within the filmmaking community. In cinematographer Chris Sukorsky's guest post, titled How to Make Sure Film Festivals Actually Watch Your Movie and Hold Them Accountable, Sukorsky details his experience submitting to festivals. So what's he learned from it all? Well, apparently many top-tier film festivals don't actually watch your movie. Sukorsky writes, quote, I like to tell the story of the time a top North American film festival rejected my film in 2007, only to send me an email 11 months later that said... Hey, so-and-so famous musician said we should check out your film. Can we see it? I almost called them out on their bullshit, but instead I bit my tongue and threw a DVD in an envelope with a copy of the email. Three weeks later, I received my acceptance letter to the film festival that had rejected me a year earlier. End quote. But the meat of this article focuses on a particular experience he had a bit more recently, where after getting rejected from a major film festival, Sukorsky was able to prove that nobody had watched the entirety of his documentary. He set up a veritable internet detective system in his Vimeo Pro account, wherein he created specific private screeners for each festival submission and tracked their views and the views duration. And when that rejection letter came in, Sukorsky wrote in the article, quote, This was one of those moments where veterans of the film festival circuit tell you not to burn bridges. But after 14 years of filmmaking, I've been biting my tongue for too long. He proceeded to email the executive director and programmers at the festival with these screenshots as evidence. And without apologizing, they refunded his submission fee. So what's the moral of this story? Well, as a relatively unknown filmmaker, the only time Sukorsky has ever gotten programmers to watch his film submissions in their entirety has been when he's had a sales agent or someone else important, like the aforementioned musician, flag his film from the inside. So his documentary, called A Shot in the Dark, really was just that. And apparently the blind submission process is too. So why do you think this was causing such a stir among uh, our readers and our community? A lot of people thought that it might have been a, a letter from an embittered filmmaker who was accusing the festival of rejecting his movie because he proved that they hadn't watched it, rather than considering that maybe they had watched the first half an hour and they didn't like it and therefore they just moved on. Um, but interestingly, a lot of people pointed out that the trailer for the film is really compelling and really good and um, everything's great, high quality. Uh, so it looks like the quality of his film is not really to be questioned. One programmer did step in to say that that she was from so-and-so film festival and she 
personally make sure that every film gets properly screened. But I think his point was that it's the top tier film festivals that really have stopped watching movies in their entirety. It's such an interesting moment because I think it's sort of like, well, duh. I mean, we all know that programmers don't actually watch our entire movies, but now that you can prove it with numbers and actual metrics, what does that mean for the independent filmmaker? Should we all follow Chris's route and like insist that the festivals watch our films or suck it up or... It provides a whole new set of questions, I think, for us. Like, do you even want to drive yourself crazy by constantly sort of neurotically checking whether people are watching your screeners? Well, it's just sort of scary to think that, you know, one of the few things that an unestablished filmmaker can do to, like, get recognized is submit his film to festivals. And what you say about you having to have someone on the inside, like a sales agent or something, to uh, actually get your film watched is just kind of defeats the whole purpose of a festival, I think, you know, because, I mean, it's a main strategy that a lot of these filmmakers have is to make a short or, I guess, a feature. Hopefully, shorts aren't in the same boat. Hopefully, the problem with shorts is that shorts are just so oversaturated that, you know, there's 6,000 or 7,000 shorts submitted to the top tier festivals. So who's to say that the same thing isn't happening with shorts? I think for sure it is. In fact, shorts have an even like worse worse problem because people watch like a minute of it instead of 20 minutes of it. Right. So I don't know. That's just, that's pretty scary stuff. Um, and not very uh, comforting for, for anyone who doesn't have a manager or an agent or famous musician friends, apparently. Yeah, and I think it's important that people like Chris continue to hold people accountable and investigate things and write about them so that everybody can in the community can just at least be aware of the reality of the situation and act accordingly. Yeah, and if you're a programmer or a curator of festivals, which I know some of our listeners are, we'd love to hear from you about kind of your take on this and and what your festival's policy is toward um, making your screeners actually watch the screeners. So moving on to our headlines this week, they touch on just about every screen except the big ones, as I mentioned at the top of the show, which tells you a little something about where our industry is at in general. Um, So first of all, when I started at MTV 10 years ago, there was always this big rush and a ton of excitement around the office when the upfronts were coming up. So these were presentations and showcases by the major television networks to potential advertisers about all the new programming slated for that year. So it was like a big deal. Now, the media and entertainment landscape has changed a lot this past decade. The upfronts still exist, but almost as big a production are the new fronts, which started six years ago and are specifically dedicated to digital content. And presenting right alongside the traditional broadcasters like Disney and CNN are newer media networks like Vice and YouTube and Refinery29. So this year's new fronts began here in New York last Monday, and they go through tomorrow. The reason they're worth paying attention to for all of us independent filmmakers is because they help us understand what the trends are, what different outlets are looking for, and how they're positioning themselves so we know where to pitch our own work in the coming year. Of course, many of us are gunning for Netflix, but they don't present at all at the upfronts because, of course, they don't have any advertising. So here's what happened so far with some of the other networks. Probably the biggest announcements came from YouTube, who are seriously going after traditional TV ad dollars with 40 new exclusive shows. Whoa. I know. Some of them are even being created by big major names like Ellen DeGeneres, Ryan Seacrest, Demi Lovato. These people have no problem, you know, getting slots on networks. So it's interesting that they're, you know, looking to YouTube. 
some of the shows are straight up brand sponsored content and will be offered to viewers for free. And the majority will run on YouTube Red, which is the company's subscription platform. I haven't really seen numbers for that. I mean, you hear about everybody subscribing to Netflix and Hulu now, and I don't know who subscribes to YouTube Red. But I was just going to ask that. <laughs> yeah, apparently they're, you know, they're, they're counting on it. Um, what really surprised me and what's good news for those of us making stuff is that according to Business Insider, production budgets for these Red shows, even though we don't really know who's watching them, are reportedly on par with those at HBO and Showtime, with shows that are costing between three and six million dollars per hour to make. Per hour? Well, that's what these, you know, that's what this age of cinematic television, it's like money, cinematic money being spent on episodes. Refinery29 is worth a mention because they have a really good reputation of working with independent filmmakers to create and showcase content. According to their site, actually, they produce 20,000 pieces of women-oriented content across 13 channels and platforms every month. So that's a lot of potential work for us. At Upfronts, they announced 15 series, and one of them is a docu-series called Girly. I'm really excited about it because it's being developed by my homies at Fictionless who did Born Into Brothels. So, you know, high-quality productions. And um, it's not just the networks that present at Upfronts, it's also production entities. So if you're looking to create work for the so-called Generation Z, or people who um, were born around 2000, which like, just don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> you might want to pay attention to Awesomeness. They produced Before I Fall, Rai Russo Young's Sundance film that was theatrically released earlier this year. And at Upfronts, they announced a new movie deal with Netflix, five series renewals, including Freakish on Hulu, and plans to launch Awesomeness News. So if you're interested in understanding what a specific network is doing or just delving into this topic more deeply, Adweek has lots of good coverage of the upfronts, and I encourage you to do so if you're actually trying to make a living in this industry. Well said. So if you're anything like me, you're eagerly anticipating the Twin Peaks revival premiering on Showtime on May 21st. But as David Lynch recently revealed on a press tour for the series, the occasion is a bittersweet one. David Lynch's movies are dead wrapped in plastic. In an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald last week, Lynch confirmed his fans' worst fears, that 2006's Inland Empire was indeed his last movie. Quote, things have changed a lot, Lynch told the reporter. So many films were not doing well at the box office, even though they might have been great films, and the things that were doing well at the box office weren't the things that I wanted to do. So now that we've got some of the best American auteurs turning to TV, with projects in development from Danny Boyle, Martin Scorsese, the Coen brothers, and now Lynch, it kind of begs the question, is so-called cinematic television the new art house? Mm. That's a question that's been begged before, but, you know, appropriate in this context. <laughs> of course, it's not as if the hurdles auteurs face when dealing with production studios are completely absent when dealing with networks either. Even though Lynch directed all 18 episodes of the Twin Peaks revival and co-wrote all of them with Mark Frost, he had a tiff with Showtime at one point, and he actually walked away from the project entirely. But many of the cast and crew members stood in solidarity with him, saying that Twin Peaks just wasn't Twin Peaks without David fucking Lynch. Now David Lynch and the network are on good terms, and David Nevins, the chief executive of Showtime, which commissioned the revival, has said that Twin Peaks 2.0 is a pure heroine version of David Lynch. Apparently, a reporter asked David Lynch if this was true, and he said, quote, I don't know why he says that, but I will answer this by saying, well, that's okay, because heroin is a very popular drug these days. These days. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. 
Actually, just a few weeks ago, I got a chance to interview the one documentary team Lynch has ever allowed to make a movie about him. John Nguyen and Jason S., who lived with Lynch in his home in the Hollywood Hills for two years, intermittently cracking open the cryptic filmmaker's mind. In David Lynch, The Art Life, the director reveals for the first time intimate details of his childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood that shaped his surrealist life's work. Unsurprisingly, Lynch was a creative child, and his mother even refused to give him coloring books, though she allowed his siblings to use them because she thought they would stifle his imaginative abilities. Diving deep into Lynch's memory and imagination, you can see that he experiences life much like he films his movies. Once when he was five, he remembers sitting on the curb of his suburban street when a naked woman came running out of the nearby woods, crying hysterically and bleeding from her mouth. Lynch describes the scene as otherworldly, and there's more memories where that came from. What? (laughs) (laughs) It's like a scene from Blue Velvet, but it's David Lynch's memory. Twin Peaks, too. Some kooky shit right there. (laughs) The documentary is Lynchian in every sense of the word. The filmmakers used music Lynch composed for the soundtrack, archival photos from his family scrapbooks, and a wide array of Lynch's art, which is as disturbing as it is deeply evocative. And if you're into art, you might notice that his artwork bears a resemblance to the paintings of Anselm Kiefer. That was kind of a revelation for me because I love Anselm Kiefer. I'm into art. <laughs> yeah? You oh, are? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But perhaps the most interesting revelation from the film is the fact that cinema nearly never had a David Lynch. After having a baby with his art school girlfriend, Lynch worked obsessively on a film that was going nowhere. His parents, who had a big influence on his self-esteem, urged him to give up filmmaking completely and get a real job. And in the nick of time, he got a grant from the American Film Institute, which he applied to blindly. So I guess people read grants blindly. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't gotten that grant, Lynch says in the documentary. I really don't. What movie was he making? Do you know? It was called The Grandmother. Uh, That was his first movie. Oh, cool. The most interesting revelation for me is that he had a baby. Like, he has more than one baby. David Lynch's kid. In the movie, he's with his now uh, new two year old toddler um, running around, painting, singing to her. Yeah. Adorable, and also I slightly fear for those children, just throwing it out there. Well, it's funny you say that, actually, because one of the most interesting parts of the movie was when David Lynch's father came to visit him in his first apartment in Philadelphia, an art school, and he saw that in the basement, Lynch had all of these decomposing insect experiments, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and basically, like, what he found was a fun house of, like, you know, experimental cinema. So his dad said something, actually, he was leaving the house, basically, and he was like, David, I don't think you should ever have children. And that, I thought, was, I mean, that that apparently affected him deeply and really never left him, but he had children anyway. So how do dead insects, decomposing insects, how do you make that leap to experimental film? <laughs> uh, you gotta ask him. <laughs> so the documentary doesn't reveal that? No. Okay. It's hard to transition into another story from this (laughs) while we're all letting it sink in. But speaking of transitions in the industry, I was very surprised to learn that Facebook is shutting down its VR production wing, Oculus Story Studio, after only two years. So in case you're unfamiliar, Oculus was an independent tech company developing hardware and software for VR like the Rift, which... And then the company got bought by Facebook for $2 billion in early 2014. 
then the next year they started Oculus Story Studio to make animated narrative VR films like Henry, which actually won Facebook its first Emmy for Outstanding Original Interactive Program. The studio has arguably been successful, so why would it be closing and what does it mean for those of you who want to create VR films? My initial reaction was like, uh-oh, like, ugh, what does this mean if one of the you know, successful studios is, is folding? But Ben Lang over at uh, the Road to VR blog shed some interesting light on the situation. He pointed out that as part of the closure, the company's going to be earmarking $50 million to invest in what they call non-gaming experiential VR stories. So in other words, like actual VR films that aren't games um, that are made outside of its own studio. So in other words, instead of investing internally, the company is now going to be investing in movies made by small studios or independent creators like you and me. So Lang argues that the story studio did a good job of shifting the thinking of the entire industry in its first couple of years to the point where they don't need to create their own content anymore. He said, quote, you could say that Oculus Story Studio achieved their mission. Innovative filmmakers now risk being considered behind the curve if they aren't at least thinking about how VR will transform storytelling. So whether or not you agree with that statement, it's a pretty bold statement. The fact is that there will soon be a cool $50 million floating around for the production of new VR work. So if you've been considering taking the plunge, now might be the time. Finally, to push even harder on our theme of the changing media landscape, this is the first year that the MTV Movie Awards has taken on the new name of MTV Movie and TV Awards, and that's not the only first for the awards show. We want to give a quick shout out to Emma Watson and Millie Bobby Brown, who won the top acting awards for their roles in Beauty and the Beast and Stranger Things, respectively. The reason these awards stand out is because they are in the gender-neutral acting category. For the first time, the awards show let go of male and female-specific categories. Now, MTV isn't exactly indie, but it did beat indie awards shows to the punch on this seemingly overdue move, whereas the indie world is often the bellwether for how Hollywood ends up behaving. I personally hope that other awards follow suit. Me too. I kind of don't. I was gonna. I was actually going to ask you, John, as an actor, what you think about this move. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. Like, I I get it. I get, like, equality, but I, I don't think that this really has to do anything with that. I think that there's markedly different aspects for each gender's performance that have to be taken into consideration. And it's kind of just nice. It's kind of nice having, like, seeing two people win those awards rather than just seeing one person win that award. But why would... Like, I totally agree. There should be as many acting awards as we can give. But why why couldn't those be like best comedic performance, best dramatic performance or something other than gender? Like we don't have best female director and best male director awards, even though you could argue that each gender might bring different things to the table in those roles. Well, those are genre specific roles. You know, like that's not the best actor categories. I guess kind of encompass all of those genres. But we don't see a lot of comedic actors get nominated for best actor at the Oscars, you know? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, what if instead of best male actor or best female actor, there was like best comedic performance or best dramatic performance? So it was so it was broken out by genre rather than gender. Like, does gender really affect the acting so much? Like, you're getting an award for the acting, well, for the craft you did, not for the gender you are. I'd say they're different roles, you know? Like, I think that we can highlight each gender's ability to pull off a dramatic role. I think that, you know, 
dramatic roles are always going to be the ones who win the major awards. Yeah, it was more just an example of like, are there other categories we could use besides gender-based categories? Does your gender really determine anything about your performance? I like, think, yeah, there are. In acting more than some other role. There are other ways, but traditionally, you know, it's always been about this sort of dramatic powerhouse Oscar Beatty performance, you know? Like, I can't say that I agree with the Academy's choices they've made for best actor in the past, you know, five odd years, but I still think it's a good format to be giving awards to both female actors and male actors. I think, uh, you know, they're both actors. <laughs> like, we're not calling in them actresses and actors anymore, which was also a big deal at one time. Um, but I don't think we need to go all that way of, you know, making it a completely gender neutral thing. I like it. And going to theater schools, there's different aspects of a male performance versus a female performance. And I don't think that that needs to be penalized. I don't think that you need to like drag politics into that. Um, I think that's just kind of a part of the craft of each actor. The roles are written differently too. So it's, it's, there's, there's a whole, it's a whole thing. (laughs) But that's interesting. Then do you think that there should be male and female categories in every yeah, I, I'd be down for best female director. I think that'd be awesome. Also, best female cinematographer. I think like if you're really going to highlight the work of, you know, if, if we're talking about getting females more involved in directing and cinematography, like we're more recognized for it, right? So why not recognize them in that capacity? I don't think that would be belittling in the sense of, you know, having a male actor and a female actor. So why not have a male director? and a female director or a male cinematographer and a female cinematographer. And hopefully that would actually, you know, cause more females to be hired in those roles. So we can actually fill out those category nominations because if it was like it was now, there'd only be like two or three in those categories. It's an interesting debate. I'll be curious to see if this MTV move kind of changes the way other organizations are are thinking about it and like where they all end up you know maybe it's with one of these solutions or maybe they just ignore it they tend to be pretty slow moving ships and now here's charles hayne with some gear news for this week hey everybody so in many ways we're still living in a post nab hangover for gear news this week even though we're two weeks out Basically, every vendor possible launches anything they can at NAB, so there haven't been a ton of announcements in the week since. Um, I kind of think it could be fun if I were a tech company to announce something like a week after NAB, because everyone would cover it, because the tech news would be desperate for a story. So a little tip for you guys out there in the tech universe. Um, First up, the Illuminati meter. Uh, one of the more exciting things we saw at NAB was the new uh, Illuminati light and color meter, and they let us borrow one to play with. It's super cool. It's a tiny unit. It's $200 at Kickstarter right now, and then 300 when it comes out. But they're veterans of science imaging and Foveon, and I, it's already fully funded, so we're pretty confident that they will be shipping in the fall. It measures both light and color temperature. And it does it over Bluetooth. So you could like set one of them at a green screen and, or you could set one over like by a window where the light's going to be changing and you can monitor the changes on your phone or even on your smartwatch to help you make exposure decisions. It's got a spring mounted meter sphere. I'm, I can't actually say Lumisphere because I think Sakonic has Lumisphere trademarked. It's got a quarter 20 mount so you can put it on like a tripod or a light stand as quarter 20 thread and a bunch of other cool features. It's not likely going to be your only meter, 
but it's definitely great as part of a kit, and it's totally worth a look. Uh, Minfrotto came out with a new Nitrotech N8 head that has a new kind of counterbalance in it, and uh, it's nitrogen-based, hence Nitrotech. Counterbalance isn't a huge deal for smaller tripods with like little cameras, but as your camera gets heavier, a properly adjusted counterbalance makes doing shots you want smoothly much easier, keeping the camera upright much better, and this is a new approach that offers good counterbalance in a lighter head. One really nice feature of this head is a lighted balance bubble. This feature has been around on like pricier heads like the O'Connor 2575 for a long time, but I'm glad to see it making its way down to mass market heads. A lighted balance bubble isn't a luxury. On dark sets, it's like a total necessity. Uh, and then last up, Waterbird's adjustable multi-slider. Uh, one thing we didn't see at NAB, and I think was released right after NAB, so good on you, Waterbird, is the new Waterbird adjustable multi-slider, which can be both a straight slider or a curved slider by bending the track. The total length of the slider is less than a meter, so you're not going to be able to, like, wrap a circle around a person, but for product shots, something the size of a soda can, you want to do an arcing move around it, this is an amazing and cost-effective way to do it. Great. Thanks, Charles. And now we'll just move right on to Ask No Film School. This week, Larry Stan- Standers? Standley. Larry Standley. We, we both want your name to be Larry Sanders, but Larry Standley asks a question about viewfinders and how necessary they are for directors. So what do you think, Charles? Do you think that they're really all that necessary? Oh, I wish I didn't have to say the answer I'm about to say. I own like a big Burns and Sawyer Mark IV, and I love it, and I totally still use it all the time. But honestly, no. So like if I'm on set and directing and I offer it to the DP, or if I'm like the DP and I offer it to the director, they basically never want to borrow it anymore. Whereas 10 years ago, they borrowed it all the time. And the reason they never want to borrow it anymore is because of an app called Artemis. Artemis is an iPhone app that does basically everything you could want out of a director's viewfinder, showing you field of view, helping you block a shot, giving you focal length, and it pulls stills. Then on top of that, it can create these nice spreadsheets with all the stills where you can add notes that you can give to Scripty, or let's say you have app Artemis at your scout, you can use it for your prep meeting to do photo boards. It's like everything you get out of an old school finder and way more. I personally still use my physical glass finder, and I like it. I couldn't find the B&H link you included in your question. It didn't work on our end, so I don't know which one you were thinking of, but I bet you're going to find the $40 Artemis app more useful. And then maybe in time, if you're frequently fiending for a better finder, you could upgrade to like a tactile optical one and then use Artemis additionally. For bigger shows where we're shooting PL mount glass, I use a PL mount adapter with my Fujifilm X-T2 that gives me like the equivalent of a director's finder. It's lighter than a fully built Epic or Alexa. So when I'm like shopping for a shot, I can put up the actual physical lens we're gonna use and shop out the shot before having to move like the bigger tripod, the gearhead, all of that. So that's another solution if you have a camera, a micro four thirds camera that offers you room for a PL mount adapter, that's another option that's very popular with people. But give Artemis a look. So I guess just one follow-up question, Charles. What is a viewfinder, like a traditional viewfinder? So the traditional like optical viewfinder was a piece, a bunch of people made them, and it usually had like optical glass in it, or not optical quality glass, but glass in it. And uh, you'd hold it up to your eye, 
and uh, you see pictures of like Conrad Hall using it all the time, and you'd use it to frame your shot, mm-hmm. and, it, and it would have like a little zoom ring, so you could zoom in and out, and then you'd look at it, and it would only weigh like a pound, and you'd be able to say like, oh, I want to be on a 20 millimeter here. So instead of like carrying the camera around, which can be heavier, and having to swap out the lenses if you're working primes, you have a way to like what we call shopping for the shot. So you wander around with it, you have the freedom of movement, you're not worried about weight. Because one thing that happens a lot of the times is like if the camera's really heavy, you don't want to have to move it around too many times. You want to plan your shot out in advance. And a director's finder allowed you to do that and then know exactly what focal length you were going to need. And then oftentimes, if you're on like a stage show, you'd go around with a finder. And then like the first AC would like put little tape X's on the floor and be like, oh, 20 millimeter is going to be over here. And then next up, we'll do a 75 millimeter over there. And then when you're moving like the 50 pound, 35 millimeter camera with a thousand foot mag and an anamorphic zoom, they know exactly where it should go ahead of time. Artemis offers you all of that, giving you field of view, focal lengths, the whole thing, and a whole lot more. For just the price of an app, if you already have a smartphone, so that's why it's become so popular. Cool. So the viewfinder still necessary, just not necessarily in its traditional form. Yeah, I mean, pre-planning your shots on set, so you're not moving because if you're doing an Alexa or an Epic job, your camera's still going to be heavy, mm-hmm. um, so that you don't have to move your camera around. You can just wander around and totally be free to explore. It's still a necessary previs tool, but it's moved from being like a physical tool to a digital tool. Great. Cool. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. See everybody next week. And now for some lovely independent films that are coming out and that you can check out. (laughs) (laughs) They're coming out. You can check them out and watch them out and go out and watch them. (laughs) All of that. First up, Amazon Prime Instant is releasing a hologram for The King tomorrow. This was one of last year's hottest Tribeca premieres, and this film is based off of Dave Eggers' popular novel of the same name. The film stars Tom Hanks, Sarita Chowdhury, and Ben Wishaw, and it's directed by Tom Tykwer, who, I'm sorry, Tom, not exactly sure how to pronounce your last name, but I do know the films you're known for, Run, Lola, Run, and Cloud Atlas, which are very inventive, so I'm sure this is the same. In this one, Tom Hanks plays a failed American sales rep looking to recoup his losses by traveling to Saudi Arabia and selling his company's product to a wealthy monarch. And coming to Netflix on May 15th is Love Song. It's directed by So Young Kim, starring Riley Keough and Jenna Malone. Also, director Kerry Fukunaga has an acting role in it, so that would be kind of interesting to see. Because it's, I looked on his IMDb, and it's the only thing he's ever acted in. He's who directed, you know, True Detective and a couple other stuff. God, that guy has his hands on so many films right now. Yeah, yeah. This movie is about a pair of friends whose friendship deepens into a potential romance during an impromptu road trip. No Film School writer Micah Van Hove interviewed Kim after the film's premiere at Sundance last year, where they talked about creating a naturalistic drama through experimentation and improvisation, and you can check that out on the site. And finally, coming to HBO on May 15th is Mommy Dead and Dearest. This is HBO's latest documentary, which debuted at South by Southwest in March, and it's about the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard by her daughter Gypsy Rose. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with that story, for 25 years, the mother kept her perfectly healthy daughter sedated under an avalanche of fictive ailments, everything from leukemia to muscular dystrophy to mental disability, using her to eke sympathy from the charities and convincing doctors to prescribe gobs of unnecessary medication. That's called Munchausen by proxy syndrome, by the way. That's called Munchausen by proxy syndrome. Also, it's called totally fucked up syndrome. <laughs> so then Gypsy Rose fled town with her secret online boyfriend who murdered her mother 
and the two bragged about the crime on Facebook. I remember hearing about this story in the news, and it was it's one of those stories where, like, when you're sitting around with friends telling incredible, you know, stranger-than-fiction stories, this one always comes up, so I'm excited to see it. Yeah, and it was directed by Aaron Lee Carr. HBO always has a good track record with true crime docs, so this is definitely going to be one not to miss. And coming to theaters May 5th is Laura Poitras's Risk, which is her follow-up to Citizen Four, which won the Best Documentary Award at the Oscar in recent years. Risk is not the film she intended to make, writes Genevieve Jacobson in our recently published interview with the documentarian. In spite of mounting ethical dilemmas, Poitras persevered with Risk, a chilling and nuanced portrait of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, whose efforts to uphold the ideals of democracy have been overshadowed by claims of sexual misconduct. Poitras set out to make the movie about WikiLeaks, but when Assange and his colleague were both accused of multiple accounts of sexual abuse, she was forced to shift gears and grapple with the contradictions that arose between Assange's ideology and his alleged behavior. In fact, she had just premiered her film at Cannes when she decided to go back to the drawing board. To make the film, Poitras told us that she acted like an intelligence agent and often risked her liberty to follow Assange over a five-year period. This is one of those fascinating stories and fascinating backstories stories. So definitely check it out. We'll link to Genevieve's interview with Poitras on uh, the podcast post this week. And here are your upcoming deadlines for events and festivals and grants this week. On June 1st, which is in a few weeks, the Pacific Pioneer Fund has their deadline. This is for filmmakers based in California, Washington, or Oregon, and the grant offers from $1,000 to $10,000 to emerging documentarians. Now, for them, the term emerging is intended to denote a person committed to the craft of making documentaries who has demonstrated that commitment by several years, but no more than 10 of practical film or video experience. So... If you can make that work for yourself, try and make it work for yourself. On June 2nd, the SF Film Documentary Film Fund has its deadline. This grant supports documentaries in post-production. Since its launch in 2011, the SF Film Documentary Film Fund has distributed more than $450,000 to advance new work by filmmakers nationwide. DFF grants are awarded once each year, and the exact amounts of individual grants and the number of grants made are determined on an annual basis. In addition to the cash awards, recipients will gain access to numerous benefits through SF Filmmakers, the Comprehensive and Dynamic Artist Development Program. I want to mention a slightly different kind of opportunity this week because summer's coming up here and we all want to get away. If you're not familiar with artist residencies, it might be because they're more common in the traditional visual arts, but many of them offer space to filmmakers or video artists or writers working on screenplays as well. And basically, they're short-term stays in often beautiful locations with other artists that are entirely set up for the making of creative work. So they offer an opportunity to make progress on your project away from the hubbub of daily life. Some of them just seem amazing. And the cool thing is that they exist basically anywhere you might be interested in going. So I put up a post on No Film School this week that gives details of three residencies with application deadlines this month that one's in a village in the Moroccan desert, one's in a small town in Italy, and one's on an island in Finland. So there's a site called Res Artis where you can look up more of these opportunities to see which ones suit your needs. And um, I encourage you all to check it out. A couple things to look at when you're investigating. One, most of them have a fee, so you want to see how much that is and what it covers and whether or not there are subsidies available. Two, make sure that they actually do welcome filmmakers because some are only open to specific disciplines. 
And finally, see what their power situation and outlet situation is if you need to work on a computer, which most of us do. So like this Moroccan one I mentioned looks incredible, but they're fully solar powered, so you can only charge during the day. Interesting prospects. And uh, yeah, good luck. Let us know if you apply for any of these. Some festival deadlines are coming up uh, this week, too. The Heartland Film Festival has a deadline on May 12th. It takes place in Indianapolis, Indiana from October 12th to 22nd, 2017. They now have 20 more categories of cash prizes, ranging from $500 to $25,000 per prize. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival in the shorts film category, and it was one of Movie Maker Magazine's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee in 2016. Interestingly and um, applicable to our first story on the show today, their selection process guarantees that your film is watched in full by at least three screening team members, with screener feedback eventually made available to the films that are not accepted by request after the festival. Now, that is unique and pretty damn incredible. Yeah, not one, but three. Guaranteed. In full. With feedback. In full. In full. On May 12th, the regular deadline for the LA Shorts Fest takes place. We might have actually talked about this earlier in the previous weeks uh, because it had an early bird deadline, but it's a really great shorts festival. It takes place in LA from August 2nd to the 10th, and it's accredited by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, or BAFTA, and the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, the ACCT. The LA Shorts Fest screened three films from last year that were nominated for the 2017 Academy Award, and the 2016 Oscar winners in live action short and animated short both were 2015 LA Shorts Fest official selections. So they have a pretty good track record. In past years, a total of 50 LA Shorts Fest filmmakers have earned Academy Award nominations, with 15 taking home the Oscar. And if you love Canada, because who doesn't? The Edmonton International Film Festival has a deadline on May 15th. This one takes place in Edmonton, Alberta from September 28th to October 7th. Also an Oscar qualifying festival, and it's also ranked in Movie Maker Magazine's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee for the last few years. It has lots of categories and awards, and again, it's in Canada. Canuck! So, we have a new segment on the show that we're testing out, and we'd love to hear what you all think of it. We spend so much of our time publishing amazing advice from filmmakers and, you know, learnings. I mean, after all, we are no film school. So um, we thought maybe we'd cap off the shows by sharing some of the wisest words we heard this past week uh, from our various posts. You want to kick it off, John? Yeah, sure. Um, So the wisest words I heard were written by me. Surprise, surprise. Um, But they weren't my words, really. So I wrote about how Rick and Morty is a great example of absurdism. Um, It's off a video essay by Miss, I think his name is Miss Koskis, a video essayist on the YouTubes. Um, But for me, it's always nice when video essays define terms that are thrown around a lot in our film landscape, but people really don't know what they mean because they're thrown around so much that they've kind of just become blanket terms to describe a style or a genre. Absurdism is one of those words, in my opinion. Uh, Personally, I think that absurd and surreal have sort of been diminished to mean an out there style. Um, And this could be like of humor or just sort of cheap camera tricks to make things look weird. And that's surreal. Um, But people actually forget that both of those terms, absurdism and surrealism, actually stem from philosophies that were developed over the past couple hundred of years. 
So for me, getting a clear definition of what exactly a true modern absurdist show or film should be is nice. So in that sense, in philosophy, the absurd refers to the conflict between the human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life and the inability to find any. In this context, absurd does not mean logically impossible, but rather humanly impossible. So a truly absurdist film will have the human struggle to find meaning in his life as the main theme in that film, with surreal qualities in place to support that. I hope that makes sense, but that's kind of what I took away from it. I actually watched Rick and Morty for the first time ever last night, so... That's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Humanly the tr- impossible. It, the, the truly absurd thing is that, like humanity exists and it's absurd for us to try and find any meaning in the universe because there is no meaning in the universe that's some pretty like sad shit but you know it can also be fun it's philosophy and so well before i go jump out the window i'll share my wise words of the week which are i published a post with a bunch of advice from different vr filmmakers who had pieces at tribeca and sundance this year and one bit that stands out is from felix la jeunesse and paul Raphael, who made a 40 minute vr film that played at sundance which we actually have an entire no film school interview podcast up about Um, What many filmmakers talk about when they talk about attempting VR is that the big change is that you can't control what your audience is looking at because like they essentially become the camera. And like filmmakers are obsessed with this because we're so used to controlling the camera. But Felix and Paul take what I think is like a more sophisticated approach that shows how the medium's evolving. They told me that the first question they ask themselves when approaching a VR project is, what is the nature of your presence in the piece? So in their work, careful thoughts put into who the viewer is at any given moment and how that impacts the tone and nature of the shots. And it doesn't mean that the viewer has to be a character. Sometimes we're just the viewer. But unlike in a film, the viewer is like still part of the story's ecosystem. So Felix and Paul encouraged anyone considering a VR film to start with that question of presence. And I think it's great advice. At Tribeca, I interviewed Drew Xanthopoulos, the director cinematographer behind one of the festival's most interesting documentaries that I saw this year. For three years, he followed people with multiple chemical sensitivities, a disorder that neither doctors nor patients understand or know how to treat, let alone diagnose. MCS is thought to be caused by environmental factors such as pollutants and chemicals, and it causes a wide range of debilitating symptoms such as headaches, extreme fatigue, nausea, and paralyzing joint pain. Not a fun affliction. His film, The Sensitives, shows how these people navigate their utterly transformed life experiences. And many people actually have to live in these sterilized bubbles that um, exist outside of um, cell phone service areas where they're not going to be, um, you know, contaminated. I guess the air is not going to be contaminated by um, anything artificial. It's really sad. And they often change their identities um, to reflect this crazy change in their life. Here's what Xanthopoulos had to say about one man banding this really interesting documentary. Great art is made around parameters, he said. If I was given all the resources in the world, or even $2 million to make this documentary, I don't think it'd be better. We drown in too many resources. I think, as artists, we are at our best with parameters. So I'd say for a young filmmaker or an old filmmaker, just try to make it work with a lot of parameters. Embrace them. They'll make your art unique. This is what creates your fingerprint. Parameters are critical for creativity, because that's life. If you have nothing, find something, and you'll make great art. 
Finally, we want to give a shout out to Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World, directed by Catherine Bainbridge, which won both the Audience Award for Best Canadian Documentary and the Overall Audience Award at Hot Docs last week. It's the story of Native American rock guitarist Link Ray and other indigenous musicians who shaped popular music. The film actually uses some footage shot by one of our writers, DP Loretta Prevost, when she was filming at the Standing Rock protest last year. And she interviewed the filmmaker when this film Rumble was at Sundance earlier this year. So we will link to that article in this week's podcast post. Congratulations, Rumble team. Now, while you're at the edge of your couch waiting to hear from us for Indie Film Weekly next Thursday, you can get some reprieve on Monday when the next No Film School interview podcast comes out. I am super excited for this one. I talked about it on our South by Southwest special episode because it was my favorite interview from that festival. It's with the co-directors of a film called The Relation Trip, Renee Felice Smith and Chris Gabriel. And what's cool about it is that not only are they just delightful people and fun to listen to, but they both have full-time jobs in Hollywood. She's a lead actress on NCIS Los Angeles, and he's a commercial composer. So this movie was their chance to see their own creative visions on screen outside of that system. And it's really outside of the system. It's not a predictable mainstream movie at all. And in the interview, they're really candid about how they made it happen. So listen for that on Monday. And in the meantime, please rate us on iTunes, subscribe, find the No Film School podcast on any podcast platform that you use and let us know if you can't find it there. We'll make sure it it gets it finds its way there. And of course, you can check out all the opportunities and grants and articles we discussed on today's show in the podcast post at nofilmschool.com where you can also read tons of other articles about the craft of filmmaking. And we love it when you stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. Can I just say that the relationship or whatever, it sounds exactly like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Like, Jason Siegel's character in that is a composer for his girlfriend's who's on, like, a crime show. It's weird. That's really weird. I've seen weird. that movie, but I don't really remember. And aren't there puppets involved in the relationship, too? Yeah. And there's puppets, there's puppets involved in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, too. What? <laughs> Except that, that um, the relationship isn't about this this couple. They made the movie, so that's weird. It's like Forgetting Sarah Marshall's about their actual life. Yeah, weird. Whoa. Anyways, I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John. Jim John. Jim John. Jim John missed us last week in the recording. I'm speaking for him because I can tell how much he missed that. I already took my headphones off and I'm done with this. Aww. <laughs> Peace out, homies. See you next week. Bye.